If we hope to evolve the cultures around us and the world we live in, we have to work and play with evolving our relationship to ourselves and the world within us. Therefore, we start with self-compassion. Peace and abundance, y'all. Welcome to the Creation for Liberation podcast, where we express wisdom to decolonize creativity, mindfully care for ourselves and our communities, and incite an inner revolution for outer transformation. I'm your host, Chetna Mehta. And as a third culture kid, artist, and wellness facilitator, I work with brown and black women and women of the diaspora to reclaim our creative inheritance and to actualize and embody our most aware, aligned, and connected selves. My guests and I will ignite you and invite you to make, move, and manifest your liberation for a world of compassion and connection, one creation at a time. Peace and prosperity, good people. Excited to be here for episode two of the Creation for Liberation podcast, this time on self-compassion fosters creation. Let's start ritualistically with some inspiration as of late. In answering the question, what's been offering you inspiration lately? I have to say it has to do with the place that I'm now based in. I'm now based in Berkeley, California on Ohlone land. And I have never lived in a place with more flowers blooming through the neighborhood than Berkeley. The bougainvilleas, the passion flowers, the white jasmines, the succulents, all of it is giving me so much inspiration and life. And I have probably dozens of <laughs> new photos in my phone of me trying to capture the bloomings as I walk through the neighborhood. Related to the land, my friend Charlotte Grubb recently shared with me the Segoriate Land Trust. The Segoriate Land Trust is an urban, indigenous, women-led land trust based in the SFA area that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people through rematriation, cultural revitalization, and land restoration. They offer various opportunities to support their initiatives, including the Shumi land tax. As someone with settler status and inherited privilege associated with my migration here, with my resettling in the Bay Area, I'm really grateful to be able to support uh, this initiative in a small way that I can. So if you're interested in learning more about the Sugoriate Land Trust, the Shumi Land Tax, as well as other educational resources that they provide including other place-based organizations that are doing similar work to return indigenous land to indigenous folks and tend to the land through ancestral ways. Check out the link in the show notes and I recommend you looking more into it as we can't be exploring decolonization or decolonizing creativity without taking action to return land to folks who tended to it long before any of us settled here to begin with. So here we are exploring the topic of how self-compassion fosters creativity. 
When we break down the word compassion into its Latin roots, it literally means to be with the suffering. While compassion does entail empathy, it is specific and unique because we can be empathetic with suffering and also pleasure and joy. Compassion is centered specifically on pain and it's specifically talking about how to be with our suffering, which is inherent to our lives equally and alongside joy and happiness. Compassion is also an active and intentional practice, and we'll talk more about this as it relates to creative practice. If we hope to evolve the cultures around us and the world we live in, we have to work and play with evolving our relationship to ourselves and the world within us. I love to quote Jiddu Krishnamurti. There's so much wisdom that has come from him. And he said, without inner revolution, outer action is repetitive, end quote. Therefore, we start with self-compassion. The relationship between self-compassion and creativity feels really important to me because I've noticed that self-compassion practice allows me to even through pain and loss and confusion to channel my feelings into creative expression. And creative expression in times like this could look like consistently making nourishing food for myself, showing up to my drawing pad and giving myself affirmational illustration, keeping my space pleasant and healing with plants and tidiness and warm fragrances like rose or sage, and also facilitating circle spaces in vulnerability and honesty and groundedness. Self-compassion has also carried me through long-term projects. For example, when I was working on the Abundance Mentality coloring book for the better part of 2020 through the pandemic, self-compassion helped me show up with motivation even when things around did not feel abundant. This was the time when toilet paper was bought out of stores for months and months at a time. Things felt very scarce, very uncertain and scary. Self-compassion helped me show up to give myself to these projects without getting too caught up in overwhelming thoughts that are preoccupied with the outcome or the future or what people would think. It helped me celebrate even small steps of progress and move past the voices of the inner critic and the ego because my compassionate voice was a direct contradiction to those voices. Research shows that self-compassionate people engage in activities more from intrinsic motivation, which facilitates higher levels of creativity, as opposed to extrinsic motivation, like money or recognition or fame. Self-compassion is positively associated with mastery and creative performance and proactivity, which ties to life satisfaction and optimism, autonomy and vitality. So let's break down self-compassion a bit more so that we can tangibilize it. I'll be referencing the pillars of mindful self-compassion according to Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who have been studying mindful compassion for a while now. The three pillars that they talk about are mindfulness, 
self-kindness, and common humanity. We'll get more into each as it relates to creative practice. The first pillar, mindfulness, is something we hear about a lot, I imagine. It's a pretty trendy term, but let's clarify it. John Kabat-Zinn, an author, clinician, and researcher in mindfulness, in compassion and stress reduction, describes mindfulness as, quote, paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally, end quote. My favorite word in this definition is non-judgmentally. I feel like we are so conditioned, we, if I may say, to have strong opinions, to know the answer, and in doing so to be quite binary in our thinking as if there's only one right way to be or do. It's such a practice to be non-judgmental, to be observant and open to multiple ways of being, even if other ways of being don't make sense to us. It reminds me of what Sonia Renee Taylor wrote in her beautiful book, The Body is Not an Apology, about one, making peace with not understanding, and two, making peace with difference. This is such a self-compassionate practice that allows us to be in awe, in connection, and even in suffering, whether or not we can rationalize the experience or an interaction. To be mindful is to be observant and open, whether or not we intellectually understand it or feel understood, and whether or not it feels relatable or similar to us. When it comes to being self-compassionate, this is being willing to be with our feelings, even if we don't understand its origins or even how to get out of it. In creative practice, mindfulness looks like being aware of our ego and our critical colonial voices that separate us from ourselves, from others, from our creative inheritance, from whatever it is that is divine to us, from our natural intelligence. For example, the voices of perfectionism and comparing mind blast in my head when I'm not compassionate, but it's also something I'm learning and honing my skills in being mindful of. And I assure you, we will talk about perfectionism and comparing mind, the inner critic and ego in future episodes, and those are gonna be so juicy. But for now, I'll share that I'm mindful of shit that my inner critic says. It often sounds like this. This sucks. What if people think this is absolute trash? I'm not as good as the viral artists that I follow on Instagram. This is such a waste of time. I'm too old for the shit. This isn't earning me any money. What am I even doing with my life? What if I completely fail? It's so easy to mistake this voice for me, especially when it uses the first person pronoun. But I found and continue to find that mindfulness of these voices creates space between these voices and who I actually am. Mindfulness also looks like being well aware of the ways in which colonial cultures like capitalism and patriarchy, for example, affect our relationship to our own creative inheritance. And the inner critic and the ego internalize a lot of these colonial influences to keep us safe in these systems that are still pervasive. 
my dear friend and creator of the Satya Yoga Co-op, Lakshmi Nair, shared some wisdom in the Moon Times Digest, our monthly newsletter, about decolonizing creativity. She wrote, quote, colonization is ego run amok. It makes us think we are the creator or the owner. Colonization divides and separates. It teaches us to confine creativity to certain fixed boxes that we call art, when in truth, creativity is a way of life infused in everything we do. Colonization is consumptive. It teaches us to focus on the product rather than the process." End quote. Even the definitions we subscribe to by default of words like art and creativity use terms like, quote, original, or production, or human creative skill, which are so limited and confusing and cause us to view our creative inheritance with an exclusive capitalist and human supremacist lens. We challenge these oppressive, implicit, and explicit meanings in the three-month Abundant Creativity program, and I'll share the link in the show notes in case you want to learn more about the program to potentially join us in the future. Mindfulness also looks like noticing all the ways in which creativity exists around us, in the way nature is teaching us lessons all the time about natural life cycles and symbiosis, about the ways we engage in dialogue, in healing, in tending, in nurturing. Mindfulness requires us to move slowly. And when we're moving slowly, we're more open to picking up on subtle nuances of our human experience, of the dynamics around us, which feed into the inspiration of creativity that's also available to us. The second pillar of mindful self-compassion is self-kindness. We all have kindness within us, but we may not necessarily be giving it to ourselves as readily and generously as we may be giving it to others, to our beloveds, to our pets, or to young people. Self-kindness, like mindfulness, is an active process because it's not always our default voice, especially in relation to us. Often our default voice might be critical or egoic, but the voice of self-kindness facilitates thriving in a sustained way rather than simply maintaining or surviving. I found that self-kindness is also growth-minded. It's very permission-giving. My kind voice sounds like this. You got this, boo. I'm here with you. You're learning and you're figuring out and you're allowed to move at your pace. You have time. You're allowed to experiment. Have fun with it. I'm proud of you. Good for you for making the time. Okay, that didn't work out or go as well as planned. Let's take a break. And if you want, we can try another way. I still love you. I got your back. When I'm kind in my creative practice, I honor a natural and collaborative intelligence with inspiration all around me. I also advocate for my needs and I'm willing to receive help from others without it being a slight to my capacity or capabilities. 
and I take action accordingly and move through my plans as best as I can, even if critical or colonial voices are right there beside me inevitably. I'd like to introduce my friend Austin Willisey here. Austin is a pop and acapella mentor artist who writes, records, produces, engineers, and arranges music for TV, film, and co-artists. He is a veteran member of the House Jacks, a pioneering acapella group with whom he's produced 10 full-length albums and completed multiple world tours. Austin is the co-artistic director of Thrive Choir, and for the past 24 years has directed Till Dawn Youth and Arts, an award-winning teen acapella group that empowers youth to find their voices. Austin's music is soulful and tender and raucous and comical, and in 2018, he won a Positive Music Award for co-writing the theme song to Thrive, a documentary with over 90 million views worldwide. In 2020, last year through the pandemic, Austin co-founded Raise Your Voice Labs, a creative culture transformation company that helps groups build brave spaces and embody new visions of community through musical co-creation. Austin is also a facilitator with YES, and I met him several years ago at the Arts for Social Change Jam. So I have personal experience with how Austin cultivates compassionate space for creativity and healing to emerge organically. Here's Austin talking about permission to explore, the power of supportive community, and space making. Through my experiences of jamming and have an increasingly large community of people around me, including my wife, Shilpa Jane, who are wanting me to be the biggest version of myself, the fullest, truest, deepest expression of myself. That gives me more space to see who I am, and it gives me more space to play and explore who I am. One of the things that I see so pervasively in my youth work in my work at jams um, with people from the upper teens through middle 70s, and my work at um, the identity-based jams like the Men Races Men Jam, the Black Diaspora Jam, with uh, people in the Thrive Choir, and my work as a singer-songwriter and artist out in the world, and my work as a, an arranger and a producer and a performer, is that so many people, myself included, have been wounded by and or are currently being wounded by there being an expectation of them to fit into a box that someone else created, not for them. I feel like one of the things that's incredibly powerful for me is doing the work of creating more space for myself to be myself. And that's why having a supportive community of people who are championing me and doing that work is so important. One of the things that I feel like I am able to do is offer that for other people. Sometimes that takes the form of non-judgmental listening. Sometimes it takes the form of loving, constructive criticism or feedback. And sometimes uh, it takes the form of praising the hell out of somebody, knowing that I often hunger for any or all of those things in different moments of my life. Thank you.
The third pillar of mindful self-compassion is common humanity. We can expand this further and include all living creatures and even ancestors in non-living realms because all of this feeds our inspiration and our creative intelligence. Though regarding human animals, common humanity is acknowledging that we are all creative. From an indigenous perspective rooted in Vedic philosophy, creativity is a divinely given archetype which we have to emulate in order to transcend our ego and our past. Creative expression can also be challenging and risky for all of us at times. Acknowledging our common humanity is acknowledging that we all have trauma to varying degrees that manifest as physical blockages in the body, restricting the flow of our life force energy, our creativity. Adrienne Marie Brown, the amazing writer and activist, said, quote, losing our imagination is a symptom of trauma, end quote. Trauma can often make us averse or sometimes negligent with taking risks. It also makes us petrified of uncertainty. Creativity, at the same time, calls for us to take risks and calls for us to find some sense of easefulness and comfort with uncertainty. Also, we all have egos and inner critics that are trying to protect us, though often getting in the way of discovering uncharted territory and taking risks and being with uncertainty. I have an inner critic. You have an inner critic. We all have an inner critic. In Janelle Monae's song, So Afraid, she gives voice to the fears that her inner critic imbues her with fear of failure, of rejection, of judgment. Viola Davis also talks about imposterism despite her mad skill and the persistent voice that stays saying, you're not as good as people think you are. I love sharing these examples to normalize the inner critic in all of us and to uplift our common humanity. Now, what about when we're not self-compassionate in the creative process? This might be familiar as it's definitely common. When I'm not practicing self-compassion, comparing mind is especially problematic and it can leave me feeling unmotivated, competitive, comparative to others, and feeling super ungrateful for all I've done and all I have. I notice feeling restless and impatient with myself and very disconnected from the very people that I'm inspired by. When we're not practicing self-compassion, external influences and colonial mindsets hijack our amygdalas, sending us straight into fighting, fleeing, freezing, and appeasing, and compromising other functions like learning, resting and digesting, and creative thinking. We may feel tight and tense, restricted in our bodies, and our life force energy isn't flowing as freely and easily as it wants to. We may even avoid creative practice entirely, or we don't recognize it in ourselves or others. This avoidance of creative practice, of our life force energy, causes even more dis-ease as it becomes a metastasizing or snowballing issue in our lives, disabling us from processing what we have to release. If you listen to episode one, 
You may know about the mason jar metaphor. When we're avoiding creative practice, we fail to twist off that lid and let the gunk out. If we're not motivated by self-compassion, we might be motivated by self-criticism. Self-criticism releases cortisol in the body, which is a stress hormone. And it's very urgent, it's very fiery, and it lights a fire under our asses, but it burns us out. So it's not a sustainable practice. In motivating ourselves with self-criticism, we're perpetuating systems of oppression, even within the microcosmic experience of our own creative exploration. Here's Austin again, sharing what he notices when self-compassion is not at the center of his creative practice. So if I am not being self-compassionate in my creative processes, I notice myself really struggling. I will start criticizing and judging my lyrical ideas. If I'm co-writing with someone, I'll be like, oh, their ideas are so great and mine really suck. And I'll like try and hide mine like way down at the, the bottom of a Google Doc. If uh, I am in the studio co-ideating or trying to play or sing something, I'll be like, ugh, like, you know, I'm not vocally warmed up or I haven't played guitar for a while or and I'll make a lot of excuses for myself to not be as good as I expect myself to be. The thing that I recognize about it is that I'm actually shifting out of the creative mindset, which is a growth mindset, which is a yes and building upon each thing that happens space into the looking for the one perfect take, the one perfect idea, the one perfect riff or chord progression. And those are two very different spaces. And at least for me, they don't so peacefully coexist. One of the things that I know is that if I am feeling seen, if I am feeling grounded and rested and fed, if I am feeling good about myself, um, it's much easier for me to be in a place of ideation um, without judgment. And if I'm feeling like tight for time and like behind and like I didn't do a good job at something, whatever the thing is, and I'm entering in this in the, the, the space with this notion of in some way I was not enough, that's something that really stands in the way of me accessing that self-compassion place. Um, and so I have written a couple of songs. Um, one's called You Are Enough, and another one is called There's Enough Love Left, which are both reminders for myself, mantras in some way, but also offerings um, for others to tap into the, the essential enoughness that we all are enough exactly as we are. Um, and it's a way that really helps me ground in um, my self-compassion, in my empathy, and also stay in a creative place. So here are some invitations for reflection. What are your egoic, critical, and colonial voices telling you in your creative practice? Where do you feel it in your body? On the other end of the spectrum, what does your kind and compassionate voice tell you in your creative practice? How does that land in your body? Write this all down. If you'd like some guidance around this practice of giving space to each voice within you separately, take a look at Mosaic Eye Unfolding's website under the free resources section 
for a template to guide you through this practice. I'll include it in the show notes, but it allows us to give space to the critical voices. Let it be heard. To give space to the compassionate voice and let it be heard separately as opposed to them debating each other or fighting each other. When we can distinguish these voices from each other, we can notice how each affects us, affects our felt sense in our body, and it gives us more agency to choose which voice we want to be guided by. If you'd like support in developing your self-compassionate practices through your creative processes or even through the creative process of life overall, reach out, join a circle, work with me one-on-one, or take a self-paced webinar. Currently, we have two webinars on the site that center self-compassion. The first one is self-compassion for grief and resilience, and the second one is compassionate boundaries with ourselves first. May you dwell in the spaciousness of non-judgmental presence. May you revel in the warmth and soothing of self-kindness. And may you recognize your belonging in this unifying tapestry of creative humanity and nature. If you found resonance with this podcast, go ahead and subscribe and write us a review. This helps us significantly to get the podcast out to more listeners like you. Thanks in advance.